We're going to be continuing our series in the book of James this evening. So please turn with me to James chapter 4. That's James chapter 4 and we'll be reading from verses 1 to 10. It's on page 1012 if you're using the church Bible. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You cover and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the, the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, if you were with us uh, last time as that we were in the book of James together, you may remember that we were looking at the damage that an untamed tongue can cause. This small muscle sat within our mouths that is all too capable of causing all sorts of problems, whilst at the same time making a terrible witness of our profession of faith. In this epistle, James describes the tongue as a fire, a world of unrighteousness staining the whole body. And we see in our text this evening that James now follows the thread of his thought about the tongue and literally traces it all the way down to the heart, the control centre. The Bible describes the heart as the headquarters of our thoughts and emotions. The heart is the place that we speak of when we think about passion, isn't it? We say, uh, don't we, that a person has a lot of heart or that somebody has a big heart where somebody wears their heart on their sleeve. These are all turn of phrases that we use here in the UK. And in our text, James is as brutally honest about the condition of our hearts as he is with our tongues. James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's a bleak but honest assessment, isn't it? It's little wonder that we struggle to control our tongues perfectly when it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. That's what the Bible says. And if we're honest, our hearts can be as inconsistent as our tongues and our tongues can be as inconsistent as our faults. But why is that? How can it be that I'm stood here as a, as a born-again believer in Christ, filled and, and sealed with and by the Holy Spirit? Spirit-filled, and yet I can be so utterly inconsistent as a, 
as a follower of Christ. What James tells us, doesn't he? He says that our passions are at war within us. And it's true that we still have remaining sin that, that wages against us, don't we? We fight on the inside. We have not yet received the redemption of our bodies. We're yet to be glorified and given sinless bodies fit for eternity. We know of this battle within each of us, don't we? It's our lived experience, isn't it? How often are you convicted of sin? How often for those that are born again here this evening are you prompted by the Holy Spirit as we make bad decisions that steer us away from the Lord? Now the Bible teaches us that this battle is, is fought on two fronts. We have the internal battle and the external. There is the internal battle within each of us and these are specifically around three areas listed in 1 John chapter 2. These are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and these are, are passions that can bubble up within us. And the second battle is external. We can forget, can't we, far too easily that we are in the midst of a supernatural war that our eyes cannot see nor fully understand. We have an external enemy, the Bible teaches us, doesn't it? Which is Satan and the other fallen angels known as demons that prowl around like a, a roaring lion wanting to devour. And their schemes are crafty and well-known. To name just a few, they look to point people away from Christ through false religion, including false teaching within so-called Christianity, media and entertainment, and of course, the list goes on. But it's his first battle, the battle within the internal battle, which no, needs no help from Satan, as we are all naturally pointing in the wrong direction, away from God through Adam. Now listen to this quote from D.A. Carson. I thought this was really helpful when I read it this week. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace, people do not gravitate towards godliness and prayer, obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. No. He says we drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. This is the battle of sin within, isn't it? This is what's happening when we are convicted with a godly sorrow over our sin for knowing that we have sinned against God. And of course we know, if we read the Bible, that God is a God of perfect justice and will not let the guilty go unpunished. Every single sin must be accounted for and paid for and that's what Jesus did upon that cross, wasn't it? And therefore the reality is that Jesus was therefore punished for my and your, if you're a Christian's, personal sin. He took the blame upon himself for me and you. And that's a serious and a solemn truth, isn't it? And this is why in verse 9, James re reveals what that response looks like. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This isn't a gospel that anyone can just shrug their shoulders to and carry on about their day. A Christian's life is a a lifelong battle with sin. What does the Apostle Paul say as he recognised this war within himself? He said, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Romans chapter 7. Incredible, isn't it? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Do you see this showing up in your own life? I know I do. Even though that we've been bought at such a high price through Christ taking upon himself our own personal sin. Although we know the gospel and we hear it every week. Although we understand the gospel and maybe we can articulate the gospel and share the gospel. We know personally of this wonderful great saviour in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we far too often only respond with such an imperfect and limp and often half-hearted, inconsistent life. Now this isn't unique to Paul or to us. We know, don't we, that James was writing in our passage, he was writing this letter to believers. We've spoken about this before. The original recipients were largely dispersed Jewish believers. They had been born again. That's what makes you a Christian. They too were filled with the Holy Spirit, eternally secure in Christ, and yet they too had this inner struggle with sin. And it was a struggle with sin that was affecting the unity between believers. It's the last thing that they needed. It was the cause of arguments among them. Now remember the context of when this was written. The recipients of this letter that James was writing to was made up of mainly Jewish believers and through persecution, both physically and economically, they were forced to move out from their homes. Many of them leaving behind jobs and successful businesses. They were travelling to foreign lands with only what they can carry, not knowing if they'll ever see their loved ones again. Now if there was ever a time for unity amongst believers, surely it was then what was happening rather than building one another up and encouraging each other they were tearing one another down with wicked words and look how else this was showing up verse 2 in our passage this evening you desire and do not have so you murder you cover and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And why? It's because of these uncontrolled passions, as James puts it, isn't it? The internal battle. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, it's very easy for us, isn't it? And maybe as we read this and we're thinking, what are you doing? You know, 2,000 years ago, don't you have enough on your plate? It's so easy for us to be wise after the event, isn't it? 
We can diagnose the issues quite clearly here, can't we? 2,000 years later, sat here in a church where we're safe, with homes to go back to and without the worry of where our next meal will come from. Maybe our counsel to these dispersed believers sat here would be to keep your eyes on Jesus. Strive for unity, we'd say to them. Don't get distracted by your circumstances or all that the, the world promises you and under-delivers. Maybe we'd remind them that they're sojourners making their way through this world. Maybe we'd remind them that this world is not our home. And on top of this, we'd echo what James has written earlier in this letter and would remind them that these trials are for their own benefit and to consider it a joy. Now, this is all great sound advice and if it's good advice for them then shouldn't we too take these things on board this evening are our passions at war within us do we desire the things of the world so much that we can too turn a blind eye to certain things that we know are not right and of course this type of thinking will show up in how we treat others and how we act and even how we pray the end of verse 2 tells us this, read that. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Worldly thinking and worldly ambitions will ultimately lead to worldly prayer. And thankfully the Lord loves us too much to answer those types of prayers. I'm sure that one day we will be as thankful to the Lord for the doors that he closed as much as the doors that he opened. Much better the, the will of the all-loving and all-knowing God than my will. Somebody I was talking to the other day, he said to me, he said, well, if God is so kind, why doesn't he just give us everything that we want? Could you imagine? Does anybody actually think that that would be a good idea? And my children, when they were younger, I'm sure they would be delighted that I'm sharing this with you, would have thought that I was the best dad in the world if I said yes to them taking up a, an ice-cold glass of Coca-Cola to bed with them every night. Can you imagine? And we know, don't we, as we get older and gain a bit more experience and a bit more wisdom, that that would have been a terrible idea, right? And I'm sure that the boys and the dentists are glad now that I didn't say yes and let them do that. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then go back a verse. Look at verse 2. It says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You cover and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Can we, can we feel the attitude within us over certain things? Can we at times take our eyes off of the Lord and all of the spiritual blessings that come from being in Christ and start to look at others and how they're doing and in our hearts cover what they have? It's terrible, isn't it? But we can become so assimilated into all of the waffle that this world offers that we can start to look at the creation rather than the creator. But we can start to seek the gifts rather than the giver of them. We prize the creation over the creator and it's the, the sort of thinking that leads to compromise, isn't it? And we need to keep our eyes on the Lord just like the recipients of his letter needed to. And would you be satisfied with the, 
the gift of eternal life in a in a sinless new heaven and earth edenesque in beauty an absolute paradise but without god there it's a terrible thought isn't it when we take our eyes off of the lord when we stray and instead prioritize other things over the lord the bible calls this idolatry verse 4 you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god that's a sobering thought isn't it to think that in our hearts and in our minds that with our affections that we can point them away from the lord and instead replace him with some cheap substitute Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, remember what we read from Paul in Romans 7 a few moments ago. Let's turn there now, actually. It's on page 943 in the Church Bible. It's Romans chapter 7. Now again, this is the Apostle Paul writing to believers, a church made up of both Gentiles and Jews. And we can pick it up from verse 17, and he says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Listen to this. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You can just feel that inner struggle, can't you? A battle between the the flesh and the spirit. I'm sure that we've all experienced this in our own lives many, many times. A battle between being in Adam and being in Christ. And here the Apostle Paul says that he has a desire to do good, but he ends up doing evil. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And as we read this and as we read about our adulterous hearts in our text this evening, we are left asking ourselves a really serious question, aren't we? Shouldn't someone who has God himself dwelling within them by the Holy Spirit start becoming more like Christ? Shouldn't the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit be bearing fruit in a in the believer's life in tangible ways? Well, of course, the Bible clearly says yes and amen to that. Faith without works is dead. We have looked at that in a previous sermon. But we do well to also recognize another thing that is also happening at the same time. Because the longer that we're a Christian, the longer that the Lord has been working on us and renewing and transforming our mind, 
the greater that we understand the holiness of God, that he is holy, holy, holy. The more that we understand the holiness of God and the more then that we can see our absolute depravity. The law is a tutor that leads us to Christ, isn't it? That's where our text is holding up a mirror to our souls this evening and he's pointing with a, a great neon arrow pointing to Christ and the grace he pours out abundantly and sufficiently to sinners like you and me. Before we go to the doctor, we must first know that we're sick. How can we speak of a saviour if we're not to know what we are saved from? It wouldn't make any sense, would it? And when we read Romans 7, did you notice where the Apostle Paul's eyes were? Scan the passage now from verse 7. This is Romans chapter 7 from verse 7. How many times does he use the word I or me? I think I counted more than 30 times. So where are his eyes? On this moment of reflection, the Apostle Paul's eyes are on himself, aren't they? And as we get to verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He can clearly see his sin in front of a holy God. But look how he answers his own question. Verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the same answer for every single one of us here this evening. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then look what happens as he takes his eyes off of himself as we read into Romans chapter 8. It's hard to see that this is the same author. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His eyes are no longer on himself. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Just stay with me because this is important. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's like Paul's giving himself a pep talk, isn't it? He sees his sin and he knows the answer. 
Just turn back to James chapter 4 because James is saying exactly the same thing in our passage this evening. Page 1012. James chapter 4. Now James's counsel to these dispersed believers that are arguing amongst themselves. Verse 7. Listen to, his, to listen to their solution and our solution to all the sin in our own lives. Verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the solution, isn't it? So the purpose of this text is twofold. Firstly, it's to remind us and them back then 2,000 years ago of the wretchedness outside of Christ. Even our best efforts fall woefully short. But then secondly, straight there as the solution is to drive us back to the foot of the cross where the one who knows our every transgression says, come. He says, come and have fellowship with me. Our perfect Lord and Saviour is not repelled by our sin. He came to save sinners like me and you. And he isn't shocked at how quick we are to forget how good he's been to us. He knows he knows everything and he still says, come. The instruction is so clear, isn't it? Verse 7, submit yourselves to God. This means repentance, doesn't it? Change your mind and turn away from any thought of self-righteousness and turn away from worldliness, knowing and willfully living in a, in a life in rebellion to God and submit yourself to him. Turn to him. And maybe you're already a Christian and you've become cold to the message of God's grace. Well, the Lord knows that if that's true. He knows if you've been going through the motions, showing face by coming to church and having the odd spiritual conversation. You can change that this evening. You can do what the text says and you can resubmit yourself to God this evening. And then James says, resist the devil. We're not to play games with darkness. We're not to be entertained by evil or to, to speak in a way in which is evil. We shouldn't be so foolish to, to play with fire by compromising what we know to be of God by opening up a foothold for the enemy. Now the devil, although unable to have someone lose their salvation, is able to derail exactly what the purpose of what it means to be a Christian and that is to live to the honour and glory of Christ, isn't it? But we are to resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, how do we do that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, we are told, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of god that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness 
and their shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is in the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's what the Lord wants you to, to do this evening. It's not a hard and complicated message. The Lord seeks a close relationship with you and no matter how distant that relationship may have become, he calls us to once again come completely empty-handed with nothing to offer than ourselves. And as we do, he will draw near to you. What a picture of grace that is. And I can guarantee you that for as long as you live your life here on this planet, that we won't get a better offer. Let's pray.